There was a period in my life where I was trying to reconstruct my childhood library and my childhood toy box and really went to great lengths to find a lot of what I had loved very much when I was little. And this was pre-eBay, so it was much more difficult to do it. But even things like Gumby and Pokey and Kittles and things like that, that, that really, they meant a lot to me. And it was fun to reconstruct it. That was author Debbie Millman chatting with me about her book, Why Design Matters, a stunning anthology rife with interviews, some of which you'll hear snippets from in this episode. Amina Toussaint, Brene Brown, Saeed Jones, David Byrne, Ira Glass. It's a beautifully designed book with photography from some of the greatest photographers in the world. So let's get into it. And for any new listeners to the show, I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound. And I kept thinking about that when I was reading through Roxanne's intro into your book. And she was mentioning this in the intro, how this is your repeated mantra, that things take time. You know, you take your time. Ideas take time to flourish. Even, you know, finding the right logo for Design Matters, that took time. Like you didn't have a logo for the longest time, which is just funny to think about. Yeah. It's weird to think what that time does because time, it can heal wounds. It changes minds. It struck me that you had no idea that you would have a career as a designer. You know, you started a podcast by a mistake. You probably couldn't have predicted that you would have been a blogger either. No, <laughs> especially since that that discipline didn't exist when I was growing up. Yeah, I, I mean, I it resonated with me because I butted heads with authority as a kid. I also have my degree in English literature, and so I and now affectionately I think I will say I have a degree in reading. That seems much more applicable. Right. And you cite the age of 33 as being a change for you. And since I'm turning 33 this year, I was thinking maybe you can think of me as like a young Debbie. Maybe there are some pitfalls ahead we can navigate around at least a little bit easier. So for my first question to you, you've given the advice to limit one's portfolio to only the work that you're most proud of, you know, not to dilute it with the work that's below a certain quality level threshold. Yes. How do you personally define work that you're proud of apart from the work that falls below your own threshold? Well, interesting that we were just talking about time because the opinion of the work has to stand the test of time. And I go through, and I think this is very common, I think people go through stages of appreciation and hatred of their work. And so it really starts from the moment you begin, when you struggle to find an idea or you come up with an idea that you really like, and then you work through that idea. And there are times when you feel really good about what you're doing, and then times when you think it's utter garbage, uh, times when you throw it away, times when you start over, times when you plow through. And then ultimately, before I release anything into the world, before I release anything, I'd like to think that it's good. Now, whether or not it actually is, is very subjective because the very things that some people love and adore the other are the very things, the exact same things that other people are outraged by. So it's very difficult to have something across the board that's just generally accepted. But for me, when I release something at the time, it feels to me that it's 
worthy of being released. That feeling does not remain consistent. (laughs) So I'll look back over certain things that I've done, and I am absolutely horrified that I ever thought it was worthy of putting out in the world. Certainly the first hundred episodes of Design Matters from 2005 to 2009, I'm not sure that any one of them are worthy of being out there, but I keep them out there so that people can see that, you know, discipline and practice really does pay off (laughs) in the long run. Yeah. (laughs) And that reminds me of like what they'll say about an SNL audition. They're not necessarily looking for like the most polished performance. They're looking for someone who can work well without an audience reaction where they can adapt their material. And you can clearly tell that they're good at segueing and understanding. And so obviously your work may not be polished up to the degree where you thought it was at a certain time. I know you've cited audio quality in the earlier parts of the show. I think it was like the first four years or something. Yeah. Yeah. Those first hundred episodes. And also my, my talent or lack thereof as an interviewer, that took time as well. There's an interesting thing I noticed. I'll bring in particularly your interview with Amina Tu Sao, where you mention resilience. And it's funny because the book, that word never comes up anywhere else in the book. And I know because I did a little control F search. I was just curious. Like, Wow, that's shocking to me. It, it is, right? But, and it's not a call out. <laughs> I'm not calling you out. You only have resilience once in the book. No, no. I think it's really, really interesting given how much, how important that is to me. Yeah, well, and it doesn't, it comes out of nowhere. You actually are the one who just says it. She was getting into a relationship with her parents and the almost nonchalant or casual bravery that they would exhibit and how they raised her. And then out of nowhere, you just asked, what's the foundation of your resilience? And was that a question that you had written? Was it a question you had spent time or was it, I know it's kind of digging deep. I don't know if you'll remember, but, or was it out of thin air? Is that one of those questions you ask where it's you as the seasoned interviewer, just know in that moment. And you, that was the word you just chose to call it was resilience. If you have a minute, I can go back to the original transcript of, not the transcript, my original list of questions for her, and I can tell you. So let me just go to Amina. I'm amazed that you have your questions from back then just available right now. Oh, I have them all. I have them all. Amanda, Amina Cues. Here they are. May 20th, 2018. Wow, you pulled that up quick. I'm going to have to get some tips from you on organization. (laughs) Resilience. Is it resilience? It is. It's resilience. Here we go. Because your parents were diplomats, you and your two younger siblings moved around a lot. You've described yourself as a nomad, but have stated that this resulted in your building a lot of inner resilience. So yes, it was part of my original script. And I don't have it anywhere else in the interview, just there. Right. And so does that just come from, Roxanne talks about this, how deep you get into your research with someone and you, you know, you apply that word and obviously it resonated with them. What does that look like when you first dig into somebody and you don't know them, you've never met them? Are you just going to watch, oh, I'm going to look at all the highlights or I'm going to try and figure out where's a very personal event that they only mentioned once? Or do you ever listen to an interview and go, oh man, why didn't they ask these questions? These were, this was the obvious like angle. I want to know the answer. Is, is it kind of all the above? Oh, I always do that. I always do that. Whenever I'm listening to an interview, I'm always sort of listening with a sense of anticipation of where they're going to take things, where they're going to go next. I mean, I do really, really extensive research before every episode. That's in many ways my showing respect for 
who it is I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's possible to do an interview without significant research. And mm-hmm. when I'm interviewed with people just giving me one of those broad, open-ended questions, like, tell me, how did you get to this point in your life? And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I'm 60. You really want me to take you through the entire course of my life? What what part? What aspect? I'd much rather get a very specific question that I could answer and then have a conversation with my interviewer about. And the questions that I prepare aren't, it's not a script so much as it is an outline of things that I want to talk about in chronological order because I want to respect the arc of their lives and have some logic for my listener that Uh I'm taking them on a journey that sort of makes sense as much as possible, as much as the conversation that you're listening to that two other people are having can make sense. It sounds like your research is very empathic then. Sounds like an empathic process. I try. I mean, I I want to, I, I talk to people about things I'm interested in. And I start with 50, 60, 70 pages of research mm-hmm. that I then cull down to somewhere around 10 pages of potential questions. And The hard part is deciding what not to ask Hmm. because I have a limited amount of time, generally about an hour, maybe I can push it to an hour and a half. And I want to be able to interview people about things that are compelling to them, but also what I think will be compelling to my listener, but is also compelling to me so that I'm not feigning interest. So there's real genuine curiosity. I, I am endlessly fascinated by the one common denominator that I think every single person I interview has and that I for a long time did not and still struggle with every day, which is the worthiness of their work in bringing it out into the world. Like all the people I speak to feel that whatever it is they're making has some value, enough value to release it to the world. And that that takes an enormous amount of bravery and courage and to some degree confidence. And I feel like that's the holy grail at being creative, of being a creative person today. What gives my point of view or my creativity or my painting or my piece of music or my performance enough value to feel like it's worthy of offering it to the world? And that's a pretty extraordinary thing. I was like, I am like, I did everything right. (laughs) I did everything right. I like, I cannot tell you how just humbling it is to be somebody who knows how to navigate America and go into like, like one of these refugee offices to get fingerprinted or whatever and look at the other people who are there. And a lot of them don't speak English. They don't have lawyers. They, you know, the typical like refugee FGM refugee woman like me has children. She's here. There's, I just, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what the right way is. And I don't know that not having compassion for people is something that we should be proud about in our immigration system because it's broken even for the people who do it right. What do you think is the foundation of your resilience? Man, you know, I think about this all the time. I come from resilient women specifically, like my mom was resilient, my grandmothers were resilient. I think that there is something about African women, whether it is the environment 
or it is just kind of the life circumstances that you have that if you make it to a certain age, you just get a different philosophy on, on life. You know, it's like, I'm like, I come from a part of the world where if you make it to five, you're probably gonna have a longer life than most people. My mom died when she was 49, even though we lived in Belgium. And for our country, like, she's still a statistic. Like, women in Guinea have a life expectancy average of about 50. And I, I have seen some hard things, like hard things have happened to me, but I also think life is worth living, you know? And, uh, and we're very aware of that. So I don't, you know, like, I don't want to feed into some like bullshit, like African people are strong people narratives, because I think a lot of times that's how it gets misconstrued. Or, and even in America, like people think that black women specifically are just stronger. And that's not true. It's like we have, we all have the same emotional reserves that everybody else has, but our lives can be more challenging. And if you're choosing to live, then you have to tap into that. It's beautiful and it segues into what you were talking about with Brene Brown, where she's talking about her book, Belonging. And in fact, you, again, this is where you get into some of the personal side of things and you take your own personal anecdote and you were relating how a student had said something to you about if I'm, I'm afraid if I do this and fail, I will die of a broken heart. Mm, yes. So yes. where in your career did this echo somewhat true for you? What is that inevitable heartbreak that you feel you had to face? I think now looking back, I can say that it's the heartbreak of regret. Because almost every other emotion we can metabolize. You mentioned that earlier on at the top of the show. We can metabolize grief. Time supposedly heals all wounds. That certainly makes them a little bit easier to manage and integrate into your mm -hmm. life. We metabolize that wild feeling of falling in love. You know, that feeling at the beginning isn't quite the same feeling we might have six years later. While we still very much might be in love, it's not that same fluttery butterflies that are just flitting all around your stomach. One emotion that we can't metabolize is regret. And, and that's what I try to imbue in, in my students when we have these conversations, because we, I do show Brene's vulnerability video to all my students as a way into having a discussion about worthiness and feeling like you are enough and your dreams are worth pursuing. And that's when we have the question about, well, what would happen if you went after something that you wanted and you didn't get it? And this young man said, well, I think I would die of heartbreak, which then segues into another video I show them after that, which is Dan Gilbert's, which is the surprising science of happiness, which shows that as long as you're actually going after something, even if you don't get it, you can synthesize happiness with whatever it is you try to do next. It's when you don't do something that you live in that woulda, coulda, shoulda mentality, which you can't metabolize because there's nothing to metabolize. And so that, that conversation leads very, very naturally into, well, you have three choices then. You know, you can go after what you want and get it and be happy. You can go after what you want and not get it 
and then begin to synthesize some other opportunity or other scenario where you could potentially get it and you're moving towards something else and could then find potential happiness there. Or the third choice, which is you don't go after what you want and you don't get any kind of happiness because you're not experiencing whatever it is that you would have wanted and you're living in a perpetual and sort of infinite loop of regret. And that's the life we want to avoid. So why do we do that? Why do we use these outside uh, badges, this social cachet to buoy ourselves up in the eyes of others or in, in doing what we think buoys ourselves up? Yeah, I mean, it's a culture status thing. I mean, exhaustion is a status symbol. Um, I think because we just desperately want to be seen. We desperately want to belong. We want to believe we're lovable. In the absence of connection, there's always suffering. So we want to feel connected. You said that we're living in a scarcity culture and that many of us feel that we'll never be thin enough or rich enough or safe enough or maybe exhausted enough or successful enough. And the number one casualty of a scarcity culture is vulnerability. Why is the opposite of all of these things, this social cachet, this out external meaning, this external validation, the opposite of vulnerability? Because vulnerability at its heart is the willingness to show up and really be seen, no armor, to really be seen when you can't control the outcome. And so every one of those things on the shit list, the judgment, the perfectionism, the work, that's trying to control perception. That's Instagram. To, yeah, Instagram is trying to, you know, it's trying to control how we're perceived, where vulnerability is, this is who I am. And just in okayness with that. And okay with, uh, yeah, always willing to get better and change, but this is, this is the flaws, this is me. I, for many, many decades, really tried to hide how, not only how much shame I felt about sort of living, but my failures, my rejections, as if somehow, if I revealed that, um, that it would mark me, it would damage yeah. me, I would become Hester Prynne and yeah. never be loved again. Yeah. Um, but I think it ultimately came from not ever feeling loved to begin with. And what is so powerful is the one thing that we all have in common is the fear that you just named. That's the, it is the paradox of vulnerability that when I meet you, the very first thing I look for in you is vulnerability. And the very last thing I want to show you is my vulnerability. Right. So I, I'm desperately seeking yours while hiding mine. What are we so afraid of people seeing? Unlovability. Hey, there's still a lot more conversation coming up. We'll be right back after this break. You are listening to Storybound with author Debbie Millman, and we're discussing her book, Why Design Matters, along with all the people she's interviewed over the years. There is that option where you do the thing that you love and then you kind of get it and then you still experience some kind of failure and then it becomes something totally different. And now you have a blog and now you have a podcast. You're like, what am I even doing? 
<laughs> yeah, well, also, Jude, you've metabolized success. I, you know, and I tell this to any student of mine that is aspiring to to do something great in the world of design. And I say, well, do you think that you'll be satisfied with a vice president of design title in the agency or the organization that you you work with? Is that your is that your aspiration? And chances are no, it's more. It's, you know, you want to be the chief design officer or the chief brand officer or the chief bottle maker, you know, <laughs> cook and bottle maker, whatever that is. But we metabolize our success just as quickly. And as soon as we achieve one thing, because those are just sort of a feeling of dopamine and, and it's a, it's all a brain chemistry thing that metabolizes and then you're on to the next thing in the same way that you want the next pair of sneakers or the next iteration of an iPhone. Well said. Uh, you're very good at distilling the larger abstract concept down into something that is digestible and I can metabolize it now. Thank you. <laughs> That's a nice compliment. Well, and and you're also good about putting yourself in your interviews and you do it only at the right moment. I noticed this with Saeed Jones where you get pretty intensely personal when it comes to fear and grief uh, culture of homophobia, living with that for 50 years of your life. And I think what's talking about it too is my own relationship with my father was complicated. It was distanced. It was insidiously painful. And I grew up with my mom, had a letter writing relationship for a brief few years when I hit with him when I was young. And he died only less than two years ago. We had a texting mm -hmm. and calling relationship during the decade that he was homeless. And to this day, because of that strange distance, he still feels accessible. And so right. it, it kind of haunts me in that way. And to quote you quoting Saeed, I believe you said, you don't just have a memory randomly, we react to it, it acts upon us. So how does your own memory act upon you in this moment as I am sort of just throwing all of that out there and and that memory of your father and what that distance was and how does that how does that play into how you connect your personal life with your interviews well mostly i try to keep myself out um, because I don't think people are coming to listen to the podcast to hear about me they're hearing they want to hear me ask questions to somebody they want to know more about in and with for them but, you know, when you were talking about this, I just had this very visceral memory of driving up to try to say goodbye to my dad as as he was about to, to, to die. And my brother called and said, I was supposed to come up that day anyway, but he called early in the morning and he said, you better get started now because he doesn't have much longer. And I was driving and, you know, I didn't have that fairy tale moment. I didn't make it. He died en route. And when I called my brother to get an update, he said, no, he, I said, is, is he still alive? And he's like, no, he, he just, he just died. And I was driving and I started wailing. I, I was actually making noises I didn't ever hear a person make. I was wailing. I was with my my then partner, uh, Maria Popova, who was wise enough to veer the wheel off to the side of the road so that I, we wouldn't kill ourselves uh, in the process. But the grief was so 
excruciating in that moment that there were no words. It was just noise. It was just tears and noise. And I, I did that for quite some time and then was able to pull myself together and then drive up to the hospital to, to say goodbye. And yet there's still so much complication in the, in the relationship. You know, the sadness and the grief of his departure doesn't it, it it doesn't even correlate with the experience of of what we had when he was alive because it was so complicated but that doesn't mean that I didn't love him as evidenced by that reaction that reaction showed a person deeply deeply sad about losing a parent and despite how complicated the relationship was i spent almost my whole life while he was alive trying to make him proud trying to win his love and approval. And probably the sadness was knowing that for a lot of the time I didn't, for whatever reason. You know, with my own father, I think for the longest time, even when he was homeless, I kind of just had this feeling that I wasn't going to have a whole lot of time with him in my life. I already kind of felt that way. But even when it happened, there was that tremendous feeling going, oh, I don't have another 10 years. I don't have another five years. There, there are some things I think to some degree I delayed mm. uh, in that relationship because I thought, oh, at this point we'll have this talk. Oh, I'll learn this and learn this. And I experienced a very, like the learning that news and the transformation that it does to your body. And then even just the transformation over the year, you're now where you at are at in your life. And I do believe the relationships with our loved ones, even after that, they do continue. Oh, absolutely. So how has that relationship changed for you now as you're older? How do you look back on that differently? Or what does it, what does it, what does it generate for you? Well, he died in 2015. Okay. Over the course, so 2015, I was, I was in my early to mid fifties. Mm -hmm. And at that point in his, in our, in his life, he had chosen not to speak with me for whatever reason five times, um, one of which lasted nine years mm -hmm. from the time I was basically 30 to 40. And then in the last three years of his life, he also chose to not speak to me. Um, he was angry that I had defended one of my brothers about how he and his wife, my stepmother, were, were treating him as he was about to get married. And I was very upset with, with how he was doing that. He was descending into some behaviors that he hadn't exhibited in decades that he had put my other brother, my, my, I'm, I have three brothers, one of whom is my full biological brother, who is uh, my sibling in two and a half years younger than me. But then when he, my dad got remarried, he had two more kids. One is 18 years younger than me. And then the baby is 26 years younger than me, but he's not a baby anymore. Sure. So your world just grew. The, the youngest was getting married and, and he was creating a lot of a lot of stress for, for them in a way that I felt was so unfair. Hmm. And I said something and he got mad at me. And when he died, he actually wasn't speaking to three of his four kids, all of whom are super successful. You know, my, all three of my brothers have master's degrees. Hmm. My brother, my old, my, the brother that's the older, I'm still older than he is, but the oldest of the three, he has a, a doctorate in pharmacology and another has a master's in social work. Another has a master's in education. 
you know, I haven't done too poorly, but for whatever reason, he always found reasons to be angry with us about various things. And so I feel bad that I didn't reach him before he died because I would have liked to have known, liked him to have known that despite it all, I did love him and he was important to me. And I'm going to try not to cry. Yeah, you're going to get me because, yeah. But he made it really hard. You know, he made it very difficult to just be who we were. And even now I can say, despite the fact that he's he's passed away now, I still don't know that he'd have approved of me. I don't know that if he would have approved of my being married to a woman, being married to a woman of color. Like there's so many things I don't know if he would have approved of and likely would have had to have further estrangement with him because of. And that's that's sad. It is sad. And it reminds me starkly again of, of actually both my parents who sometimes that, that lack of approval is almost more of a disapproval of their own selves and risks they didn't take out, take in their own lives. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, it's tough because obviously you're wanting that approval, but you've kind of already given that to yourself in just taking that risk. So you've, you've, you've done the work in healing it, but then still too, to your, this point, when that person's gone, like I still, you know, think, oh, I could have, like, I would love to have just, maybe the last thing you think, the last thing you know is that, that I love you, right? Yeah. You, Cause you- That you were loved, yeah. Exactly, because you're ultimately wanting to give them kind of what you were wanting back from them. It's like you've, you've kind of become that parent, yeah, so, so to speak. absolutely, absolutely. After he died, my father's sister is an Orthodox Jew, and they had a very long estrangement because my dad married a non-Jew and then had children with her. And in the uber-Orthodox Jewish community, that's just something you don't do. And so they were estranged for about 25 years. But towards the end of his life, they did reconnect and, and did begin to communicate. After he died, she sent me a book that my first book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, um, he had sent her with a note and said, you know, this is my daughter, did, you know, our, my Deb did this. Um, so proud of my little girl. <laughs> It was so interesting because there he was saying he was proud of me, but in that moment sort of infantilizing me. Yeah. <laughs> and it just says so much about our relationship. <laughs> but the note meant a lot to me because at least I didn't know there was some evidence at one moment in his life he was indeed proud of me. So this thing was great. My next question, how did you get to this point in your life? Is that what would be the, I'm just, that was a joke, obviously. <laughs> I love that you did that. I was, I was <laughs> really thought you were serious. I'm like, oh my God. I was. I realized for a second you did think I was serious because I'm so bad at sarcasm. Sometimes the girls look at me and they're like, were you being serious? Like, no, I've had to teach them sarcasm because I'm also bad at it too. So, Well, I also tend to be, I'm, I'm, I love laughing and I love humor, but I don't always understand that things are supposed to be jokes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Same. I'll take things very literally. Someone will say something to me and I'll repeat back. Go, oh, seriously? And they go, no, dude, I was, I was joking. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I just, yep. I just trusted you with full value. Thanks. The finality of death with one of the people who made you, I think is such an overwhelming and fluid and evolving revelation because what happens is, and it takes like, I feel like a full year or two for you to kind of 
process this is you keep remembering all the things that will never happen again. Right. And you don't remember them all at once. You just don't. But you're like, oh, we'll never, that, that spinach enchilada dish she made. That'll never have happened. No one can make it just like the way she made it. Oh my gosh, do I have any safe voicemails? I can't remember her voice. And that's the other thing. It's a proof of love. And like you said, your complicated relationship with your father does not negate the vibrancy of the love. You know, even if, even if you couldn't currently access it, it was it clearly was in your mind and in your body. And grief is like love is almost like gasoline reserves in your body and you don't know how much is there until it's all burned out. And you're like, whoa, I had no idea I felt this strongly. And so that could be a loved one, a friend, a pet. And I often talk about pets or co workers or former teachers. I talk about secondhand grief often in, in yes, conversation. Yes. It's important because, you know, at least when it's your parent, no one who has any kind of compassion will tell you you're overreacting. They would have to be just a monster to say that, right? But because of American culture's relationship to grief, we feel guilty for the secondhand grief. It was just a dog. Oh, you when your mother's seen... dog dies in the book, oh I was I was a wreck. Oh, poor Kingsley. And I she was, was a wreck. wreck. Yeah, and you see that, and that's why I wanted to include it, because my grandmother, who's not an animal person, like, just really was not being compassionate, but I knew. And so that's the only, the only thing worse than, than the reality of grief itself is the way the rest of our lives then kind of stacks on top. Hey, sit tight. We got a little bit more to go. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Debbie Millman, and we are discussing her book, Why Design Matters. And now for the final section of the show. David, the last thing I want to ask you about is achievement. You were recently asked what your greatest achievement in life was, and though you acknowledge that your answer was a cliche, I was really touched by it. And you said that your greatest achievement in life was your daughter, and now you also have a grandson. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, In the same interview, you stated that coming from you, she could have been such a mess but she's not, and she's happy, very happy. David, why on earth would you think that coming from you, she could have been a mess? Um, I was not a horrible parent, but I was on tour sometimes. I recall that there were times when I just thought, oh, this parent thing, I really don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Or there was other times when I thought, oh, this parent thing, it, it doesn't fit with the picture I have of myself of being this kind of, you know, independent artist, bohemian type. And yet, I actually enjoyed enjoyed it very much. (laughs) Um, But yes, so all those kinds of things. Luckily, uh, the little ones are more resilient than maybe we give them credit for. Before your voice was fully formed, and this makes me think of when you talk to David Byrne, talking about achievements in life. I'm curious what your greatest achievement is in life. Clichés are totally welcome as well. I think that my biggest achievement is actually coming out. 
I didn't come out until I was 50. A lot of because I was worried about what my family and my friends would think and how I might be judged. I had, as as you mentioned, you know, in talking with Saeed, a lot of inner homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and suspected that I might be gay in my 20s, although I could go all the way back to say, you know, I kissed Patty Goldrich in third grade for like a long time. So... It wasn't just an experiment. I am so much happier and so much more at ease in my life having taken that step into who I was. But 50 is kind of old to do it. So, you know, it's only been 10 years now that I've been living fully, you know, out. The other thing I would say is talking a lot more about my childhood and the impact that the experiences that I had made who I am now, all of those were very secretive. They were big secrets as well and didn't really come out with those statements until I was on Tim Ferriss's podcast when he asked me sort of an innocuous question about something he read online and wanted to understand the clarity around it. And then boom, I'm telling, you know, the world's most famous podcaster with the biggest audience on the planet, you know, about my my early childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but those ultimately both open the door to uh, to living with a lot less shame. And that's a big accomplishment for me. I would say so. Shame is probably one of the strongest things that I would say decreases life expectancy. Yeah. People living with it and letting that become a thing. It, it uh, Ultimately, if you can free yourself of that, because shame is something someone else puts on you. You don't put that on yourself. Well, you take it on. Yes. You take it on. Yes. You know, you, you are socialized by your communities, your families, your friends about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, mm-hmm. and the things that you ultimately feel are unacceptable, but very much a part of who you are, mm-hmm. you internalize as shame. Mm-hmm. And that's all learned behavior. You know, it's so funny. Roxanne and I look at Max, our little dog, and our little dog just sort of humps whenever he wants to and <laughs> poops wherever he wants to, and he has no shame about anything. <laughs> no. It's incredible. It's incredible. Like, he has an urge to hump something. He does. He does it in full view of whoever might be around. And we're sort of in awe of the fact that this little dog has no shame. None. And and all of that shame we learn. I mean, not that I want to go around humping everything all the time. But. I was going to say, there's a great quote from Debbie Millman. A hump to your heart's content. Be who, be who you right? are. <laughs> Spoken like a true branding expert. <laughs> Wow, thanks. I had no idea I had a, had a future in branding. But 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 it is something to think about, you know, the yeah. things that we learn to hide. It kind of couples up with Ira where you talked about with him, fear is built into making things. You've stated the following, Ira, and I was really curious about this. And this gets back to what we were talking to, talking about a little bit before about self-esteem. But this is really about the show. And you've said, honestly, making radio is still hard. I have a really hard, I have really hard weeks on the show where I'm really frightened and really struggling to make the show good. Yes. And in a recent interview in The Guardian, you stated that you feel scared all the time. Well, feeling scared all the time is normal for a broadcaster, right? No. Really? I don't think so. I, I, I mean, wow. maybe, maybe they're just not being honest with me, but not every broadcaster I know is scared all the time. But like, you don't know if the thing's going to be any good. You're in the, I don't know. It's like being in the middle of like preparing a thing that's like not done and you don't know if you're going to finish it on time and you don't have enough time. And you're like, I'm, yeah, like for me, fear is just built into 
making things. But what about your track record? Do you feel like there's... I feel confident we'll get it done as well as it can be done by us. <laughs> I love the book. I was showing it off to my partner this morning. And Thank you. Yeah, I just, I had such a delight reading through it. I had quite a while to look through it, and I'm glad we actually got to finally speak. Thank you again, uh, Debbie, for coming on the show. It was such a delight talking to you. Jude, it was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. You bet. Oh, man, I could chat with Debbie all day. What a treat. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Aileen Boyle, Otteray Media, Harper Design, Epidemic Sound. I hope you enjoyed this time with us and that if you're not already, please subscribe to the show. Share this episode with someone important to you. You can order yourself a copy of Debbie's book. It's titled Why Design Matters by Debbie Millman, available now at your local bookseller. Production assistance is by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Belltill. Our production coordinators, Jordan Aaron. Our mix engineers, Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.